Welcome to the Continued Learning Podcast. My name is Dr. Fawn Carson, and I'm Senior Managing Editor at OccupationalTherapy.com. Today's podcast features our host, Dr. Dennis Cleary, discussing Continued Learning Podcasts, Understanding the Evidence for Therapeutic Extended Reality, XR, with our guest, Robert Ferguson. Thanks for listening. Welcome, everyone. My name is Dennis Clary. I'm a senior researcher and an assistant professor and uh, occupational therapist now for 25 years, and I work currently at Cincinnati Children's Hospital Medical Center. And I'm joined today by uh, Rob Ferguson, who's an occupational therapist at the University of Michigan and an expert in virtual reality. And so this is going to be a continuation of our first uh, discussion that we had about virtual reality, and we're really happy to welcome you here, Rob. Can you uh, say hello to the good people out there? Hello, good people out there. It's Rob Ferguson. I'm a clinical specialist at University of Michigan Hospital on inpatient rehab. I've uh, been practicing for 26 years. I was 26. Now I have to think about it, Fawn. I've already forgotten. And cut. Hi, everybody. I'm Rob Ferguson. I'm the clinical specialist at University of Michigan Hospital in Ann Arbor. And I run our computer uh, our therapeutic technology program that includes our computer therapy treatment lab, our virtual reality program, and our MakerPod makerspace on inpatient rehab. Great. And Rob, could you summarize our 55-minute conversation we had in, say, two minutes? Uh, just generally, what, how are you defining virtual reality, and how are you starting to use it within your practice? So the biggest problem with virtual reality, and uh, especially with practices, is that the, the taxonomy for the terminologies, both for the technologies as well as their uses um, is very broad and uh, and changes over time. And it's, it's, it's hard to keep up with though, but the way I want to frame it for our discussion is we'll stick with virtual reality versus the broader term uh, extended realities. Um, in virtual reality, we're talking about computer generated environments. And that could be anything from a video game on a console or PC that is on your computer screen or television or monitor. Um, but it could also be your phone, your tablet. It could also be um, a virtual reality headset or an augmented reality uh, glasses. And uh, so it, the, the, the platform on which you interact in virtual reality um, is it kind of plays into how you interact with it. The biggest problem is that all those things many, many times are called virtual reality, but they're each very different. So you have your augmented reality, which is a digital overlay onto real world view and a um, what's now commonly cons considered mixed realities. Same sort of thing where you're overlaying either a digital content over your real view or your view over digital content. And the, it's that interaction and how you interact with it, like the difference between augmented reality um, on your car dashboard where it projects a heads up display on your windshield can be considered a form of augmented reality, um, as well as Pokemon Go on your personal device, um, where it's just an overlay in two dimensions, but the way you interact with it is a simple swipe on the screen versus uh, Microsoft HoloLens, where that digital information is spatially locked to the environment that you're actually in. So you can reach out, grab and manipulate those 
pretend computer-generated objects, or you can move to the other side. Um, but you're seeing both the real world and the digital world. And then you have your fully immersive virtual realities where you're in a head-mounted display and the content is all virtual and you, you tend to be immersed into it and you have a sense of presence of being there versus being in the real world. And so that's kind of the perspective I want you to think about as we talk about the different kinds of technology, especially once we get into talking about research and practice because it, it's very different in how you go about understanding it and using it. Yeah, and so our, our first conversation was really um, kind of describing it and um, maybe how you would use it a little bit. Could you just give an example of maybe, not that we have ever had a favorite patient uh, in the 15 years that you've been doing this, but maybe a, a patient that is kind of a, a nice example of how um, some of these uh, realities, some of these technologies have been really useful for them to meet their their goals and, and hopefully to, to be more independent uh, long term. Well, in the, the first podcast, we talked a little bit about kind of a non-immersive example um, using at the, um, at the computer. But um, from an immersive standpoint, using immersive virtual reality, um, a, a simple one that's easy to kind of picture because I think it's always um, helpful to kind of uh, either visualize or, or see how virtual reality is used. A patient who had a um, below knee amputation was having difficulty in their physical therapy session and their occupational therapy session with being able to stand without external support holding on to something, whether they were pulling up their pants or whether they were trying to do a transfer. And um, we had him, he, he was a, a hunter and did a lot of bow hunting. So of course um, our goal, and we explained it to him before, was to work on the standing balance, but also being able to free up his extremities so he can do things functionally standing um, until he was uh, fit for a prosthesis down the road. And so we took him into the clinic and had him stand with his hips against the mat, the exercise mat. And we had him play a, uh, an archery game where you're defending a castle. It's very much, if you can imagine a bunch of minion sounds, um, that's the sound that these characters make as they're attacking your castle. Um, and basically you are shoot, shooting uh, arrows at them and, and shattering them into little pieces and they have little viking helmets it's it's very fun and entertaining and he loved it uh what we were we were still utilizing the same balance strategies he was using but just in that virtual context um in another place and time and he once he started balancing all of a sudden he started doing things that he couldn't do when he was in the real reality if you want to call it that um, he was pivoting on his one foot. He had leaned away from the mat table, started pivoting back and forth, left and right, as he was visually chasing, um, you know, these little minions who were attacking his castle that nobody else could see. And he, you know, was making these bow and arrow movements. And, uh, but when we sat down and I showed him the video of him doing that, he said, but I can't do that. And I said, you just did. And he said it, it was the hardest yet most fun thing he'd done in any of his therapy sessions. And he also was having some uh, phantom uh, sensations in his, his right leg. And um, we used some uh, free uh, apps through Steam, which is an online gaming platform, that allowed us to virtually manipulate where the controller was. So um, we played uh, Fruit Ninja, but with his left foot and his right upper thigh but we were able to manipulate what he saw so that the sword was out where his foot should have been if he had had his foot still 
And um, he said it was the weirdest thing that, that he could feel like the rest of his leg was participating and his pain and his um, uh, hypersensitivity was gone while he played. And, and when I asked him later, he said it lasted for about two hours. It wasn't the intent of what we were doing, but it was more of a, an exercise strengthening kind of thing. But um, he, whenever he was having some of those sensations, he asked for just a few minutes in in the virtual environment before he got started and doing some things and it helped for him and it worked for him. So. Awesome. Thanks. That's, that's really helpful. And so as we, as we move forward today, what we're really going to start, one of the things we're going to start, start talking about is what is the research? And so, um, as you said, it's, it's good, bad, and ugly. So as with everything, why don't we start with the ugly? Uh, so what's some of the research base, uh, for virtual reality and what are the things that are going out? Um, and that, uh, you know, we as therapists, you know, trying to work on our clinical reasoning and making good decisions about, you know, the the types of interventions that we select. Um, what's the research about virtual reality right now? Well, the research reality is that um, the majority of decisions that people are making in the clinic to use virtual reality or not are based on non-immersive technologies. The Wii, the, uh, the Kinect, the PlayStation i23, what do, you, what do you really think about the Wii? I actually, I still use the balance board. Uh, I still have two more Wii consoles until they die and no longer become use. How about the Wii bowling? What do you think about the Wii bowling? I haven't done Wii bowling in years. Um, it hurts my shoulder, but some people still enjoy it. Um, and, uh, and, there are, and again, it's not like we talked about in the first session. It's not about the, the game. It's about how you use the game and what kind of interventions. And we'll talk about that a little bit later, but... Finally, earning CEUs is as easy and stress-free as listening to your favorite podcasts. Just head over to OccupationalTherapy.com and sign up to start earning the CEUs you need online. You'll get unlimited access to hundreds of courses, including live webinars, on-demand videos, and text courses, and the audio courses you love for just $99 per year. And if you sign up today, you'll get 13 months of unlimited CEU access for the price of 12. This is an exclusive offer for our listeners, so don't wait. Go to OccupationalTherapy.com and use promo code PODCAST and get 13 months for just $99. Join thousands of your colleagues who are already earning their CEUs online with OccupationalTherapy.com, an AOTA-approved provider of continuing education and an NBCOT professional development provider. And don't forget to use promo code PODCAST at checkout to get your free bonus month. Once again, that's OccupationalTherapy.com, promo code PODCAST, P-O-D-C-A-S-T, to get started today. Um, so it's not about the game, it's about the player. It, and it, it's about the therapeutic strategies you're using. You're just using the, the, the game and the technology as a tool to provide the intervention. So, And, that's, and that, that's where we talk about some of the evidence about the effectiveness of VR gets into a couple of gray areas. So but let's kind of start with the, the beginning points. Um, for instance, uh, for our stroke rehab program, we selected the American Heart Association Stroke Association rehab guidelines, stroke rehab guidelines. And, and they said that uh, in those guidelines, it says that virtual reality is um, a, a, an intervention that is reasonable to use for patients with motor impairment. Um, as well as some cognitive impairment and visual impairment. So uh, when you actually look at the research, it's only based on a few articles and it's all about the Wii and, and the Connect and a lot of non-immersive um, 
gaming technologies, which were effective, but they aren't the same thing that you and I think of when you read in research, it says virtual reality, everyone thinks about the head mounted displays. Um, because the context of, of that technology is very different. The lens with which we view that is very different than it was 10 years ago. And so when you're looking at some of these research recommendations and the meta-analyses, they're still referring to some of those technologies as virtual reality. And that part of that is because of the um, ambiguity in some of the, the, the technology terms by the technology industries that um, work in virtual reality. And, there, and when you look at the research, it's important to see if the authors have defined how they're using the word words, words virtual reality. And if they don't define it, then you're going to have to kind of look at it and, and try to, to figure out what kind of virtuality are they talking about. Are they talking about, like you said, Wii Bowling? Or are they talking about a balance board? Or are they talking about an immersive virtual environment? Um, or the difference between using uh, a HoloLens and manipulating digital information as if it were truly there? Or are you talking about swiping on a screen? And all those interactions, the different kinds of technology um, affect the way that you motor plan, move, um, the cognitive strategies that you use. And so you, you, the very first and foremost when you're evaluating the evidence is to know exactly what they're talking about. And I always put a cautionary tale for myself as I'm, I, uh, as I'm reading the evidence. I approach it as kind of a cynic always. Um, and if they aren't defining what virtuality is and I have to figure it out, then, then I'm not sure they do. They know what it is. And so I, I have to always take it with a grain of salt and then I have to figure out if it's something that I, I want to use clinically. And the biggest problem with research is the dichotomy between how research is um, the context of what research is done and, and the context of how treatment is done. And, um, you know, where you're talking about research, you're, you're trying to control for or remove or account for as many variables and reduce the confounding variables to demonstrate whether this intervention is effective. And you can't really generalize it beyond the population that you look at. But we all know that in rehab, um, to get a homogenous uh, group is very difficult, it, whether it's in research or practice, it's even less in practice. It's, and that's where the dichotomy is, is that in practice, a therapist who has to apply the evidence has to now decide, is this evidence that excluded my patient or my patient would have been excluded, is it appropriate for them? And it, so it all comes down to the clinical reasoning as to whether you choose a, a, to use the evidence that you see. And that's where it really comes into understanding how to read the evidence and how to decide whether to, to, to use it or not. And because we have to account for all those variables, all the things that can affect their treatment. But I think that's also why, Dennis, why when you look at comparative research and they start comparing interventions to each other and comparing it to if you do all the, both of those interventions together, the one that usually comes out is the one that they do both together because they're, they're both evident. I really don't care if one is 10% more effective than the other, but if I use both and I know that that's better than one or the other, I'm going to end up using both. And that's, so you have to kind of look at the evidence with, with a, a, your own particular critical lens and decide, is this going to be appropriate for my patient? And that's not always easy to do, especially when the evidence is confusing, like evidence in virtual reality is. That's slowly changing the last year or two the research that's coming out is really nice, but all most of the, the research is based on um, research-based games. They're not commercially available. They're not available to use. They're, they're more conceptual. Like, you can use VR. We've designed this game to provide this intervention 
and it works or it doesn't. And in the clinic, we don't have access to that game, but we have to look at it conceptually. I know that if I use a bimanual isokinematic training strategy in the context of VR, well, it, it works in both a virtual context and a real world context. So I'm gonna, my, my treatment approach is going to use the evidence that I know works, and I'm gonna use that virtual context as the intervention environment, which is consistent with our practice, um, our practice framework. Always, and although she used the three E's, I use the four A's. So, but go ahead. I I do like your E's. Yes, absolutely. Well, we'll start. We'll, we'll, I'm going to quote my wife. So my my wife, doc, Dr. Claire Kilbane, uh, who does teach at the University of Notre Dame. Uh, so she has a textbook coming out. If anyone's looking for a, a textbook for the holidays, uh, so she's looking at um, using technology to differentiate instruction, and so she talks about. Um, how technology can be really useful, but we have to be thoughtful about how we approach it. So is it engaging? Is it efficient? And is it effective? I think as occupational therapists, we, um, I, I'll just speak for myself, oftentimes I like that bright, shiny, uh, you know, piece of, of foil that's on the ground and I, I aim for it because it's fun and it's interactive and it's bright. Um, and so we, we go for those things sometimes that um, just maybe help encourage engagement. And, and sometimes that's important uh, when we're working with our clients, Ab absolutely. We want them to participate fully in therapy. But really what we need to be aiming for as, as therapists is to really use our clinical reasoning to, to look and see what's gonna be the most effective thing for our patient. And uh, so that's Dr. Claire Kilbane uh, coming soon to a, a bookstore near you. Um, so in terms of how you how you're differentiating kind of and that's it's kind of what we have to do as therapists on a on an ongoing basis and fortunately you know we have an ever-growing knowledge base we have more um, research scientists within our profession that are able to to have labs and really to have some nice controls so as you said we we can try to aim for one or two or three or four variables instead of a hundred variables um, how do you make that, how do you kind of translate sort of some of these, um, the research that's done in the lab to uh, research that is going to be helpful for you in terms of clinical practice? I, I try to read each research um, as a conceptual piece versus that specific intervention, unless it's uh, something I'm able to get my hands on readily, like if there's a consumer um, based product or a commercial product made for rehab that is currently available and I can try it and use it to see if it's a, as effective as it, it says it is, or if there's research for a particular made for therapy virtual reality system, um, then again, I, I try it and see if that fits with what I read. But since most of the research um, is not available um, in the clinic, um, I, I think conceptually, I'll, I'll give you an example. Um, there was a research and it was not based on therapy but i was looking at the concept of the context of virtual reality and um, exertion of and perception of effort and there was an article i want to say i'm going to make sure try to make sure I, you at all and it's y-o-o i don't remember the rest of them i apologize to all the other authors um, but what they were looking at was um, looking at how people without a a, a condition perceived exertion um, uh, while they're in VR 
And so what they did is they had them do some commercially available games and they did uh, perception of exertion scales. Um, and what they found out was that um, when people were in virtual reality, they, their perception of how hard they were working was less than if it was in the real world. So even though they were, their heart rate was high, comparable to other activities like walking, running, and dancing, depending on the game that you had them play, their perception was much less, that they weren't working as hard. And then there was another study that um, they looked at the same activity. Again, I'm thinking conceptually. This is, And again, this is just a very small N, small group, and not having a specific condition. But you have an activity, and the activity was basically um, you stand against the wall, you have a, two dumbbells in your hand, um, and to, I believe, 80% of your maximum effort. Um, if I'm recalling the, the percentages correctly, I might not be. Um, but they flexed the elbow to 90 degrees, and then the object was to hold it as long as you could until the pain became uh, too high for you to continue or the muscle fatigued and you lost the position. And then they created a virtual version of that with tracking and you still had the same weight, but when you had the headset on, you couldn't see your real body. You only saw the um, the embodiment of yourself. So they had a, a, an avatar, and you just could see the avatar doing the exact same movement that you could do. It was the exact same activity. The only difference was the environment that occurred in the real environment versus the virtual context. And what they found is that people uh, tolerated it longer before and reported lower levels of pain and as well as being able to, on average, I believe, um, hold it for up to a minute and a half longer before muscle fatigue. The only real difference was the environment and the context of the environment that they did. And who knows how to explain that, but it comes into play when you start thinking critical, clinical reasoning and how to apply both of those. I think about the patient who has a cardiovascular um, issue versus a patient who um, does not. I'm going to look, I'm going to approach them both very differently. I know that they perceive that they are not working as hard, so I can make someone work longer. Um, but if they have a cardiovascular issue, I have to look at it the exact opposite way. I have to go, they're not going to realize they're working that hard. So I'm going to need to monitor more closely and limit some of their activity so that it's about looking at the evidence on a conceptual level and thinking about how am I going to apply this clinically? And it, it doesn't necessarily mean you follow a protocol. That re protocols are research-based. Every patient is different, and they're going to respond differently to that protocol in the clinic. So you have to look at the concepts. What is what are the key things to get from it? How do I apply it? And like any other, you know, clinic-based evidence is if it doesn't work for your patient, you just don't do it. If it works for your patient, they find value, and it and it makes a difference for them. Then you're going to do that. Um, and that's one of the reasons why there's such a, a gap between the, the, the in, in translating evidence from research to practices. I, I think there's a gap in the approaches and how we look at using the evidence. That's purely an opinion. That's not going to be a, a question on a test or anything. So <laughs> that's for the knowledge translation. I believe, I believe uh, Dr. Lisa Juckett has a wonderful knowledge translation uh, unit here on OccupationalTherapy.com. If you want to know more about that and how we can shorten that gap of 
moving uh, research from the lab to the to the clinical site. But could you just kind of expand on that a little bit more about some of the the ethical dilemma that 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 brings up, or even the ethical dilemma of kind of maybe using like do you think that there is enough evidence to support the use of virtual reality within occupational therapy practice? Absolutely. I mean, everywhere from pain, anxiety to um, strength, endurance, there's a lot of research out there. Um, Post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, so there's a lot of evidence that shows that virtual reality and the virtual context make a difference and improve. The, the big things that uh, if you're looking at kind of a, a summary of, of what that would be is that um, we don't really know how long the effects last haven't really seen research that that shows that um, that I also you know in reading the research adverse effects are based on a lot of the characteristics of the person that's why it's important to think about the population that you're working with and understanding like perception of exertion can be a positive thing or it can be a negative thing depending on the patient so we always have to think about that virtual context in relation to the context of the patient's um, physical attributes and their abilities. Um, and you have to look at the methodological rigor. A lot of the studies on VR are only just recently, just now coming out with better rigor. They're not really strong, but it allows you to think about whether you use it or not. Um, and then the big thing is that VR is intended not to be the treatment. It's, it's meant to be an adjunctive treatment. It can be also be used as a preparatory treatment. Um, a wonderful example of that is a patient who had um, in the lower extremities, the physical therapist and uh, the occupational therapist were talking about the difficulties, the, the lack of perceptive awareness was having on both their gait training and the OT's um, functional mobility and self-care skills at the bedside. And what they realized is they would put them in virtual reality, do Fruit Ninja and Fruit Saber, which is the foot version of Beat Saber. And the patient would then go to the physical therapy appointment or they would go into moving on to a functional activity. And the patient was making the comment that on the days that I did that as a preparatory activity, when I would go to PT, I was more aware of the strategies they were trying to teach me. I was more aware of the positional movements and, and how the impact of what those strategies were than on days that I wasn't doing the VR beforehand, whether it was you know working on ankle stability for lower extremity dressing uh, activities um, or you know transfers or gait and PT. We looked at it from a qualitative standpoint and said that's valuable. Uh, there's no research to say that that is the the way to go, but it's a, it, it presents a research question that could be evaluated by somebody later, but in the moment, um, that clinical reasoning in the moment, it's, it makes sense. The qualitative information was there. Would the person still have continued to make improvements like they did? Probably. At the same rate? Probably. I don't know for sure. All I do know is that to the patient, it was a meaningful treatment approach that they said made an impact on their ability. So I, we made the clinical decision to continue doing that as an adjunct, an additional treatment session during the day, not to replace any of their other sessions, but it was an additive. And so that's where the, 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 the place, I guess, for VR is really is, it's not a replacement for your regular interventions, it's to augment it and, um, and go with there. Gotcha. So just in terms of, um, and, and I hadn't even thought until you mentioned the, the exertion and that people 
are most likely exerting more than often they would. So do you use some type of physiological, um, you know, monitoring of some of your patients in terms of, you know, um, blood pressure, heart rate, uh, those types of things, or you've not really been in a situation where you've needed to do that? Um, we, we, we monitor all of those, um, especially if they have cardiopulmonary issues, um, if they have an LVAD, a left ventricular assisted device, we'll have our Doppler to monitor um, the, the heart rate as well as the, um, the pulse there, because we can't take a traditional pulse that way, but we want to make sure that um, the, they're tolerating it appropriately. Um, it, so it becomes more of a precaution and there are con, you know, contraindications to VR, but I think as a precaution, and, and I'll include a, a handout of um, some contraindications and precautions. And again, they're just some, they're not, you know, I, I, I don't think it's an exhaustive list. And, and I think that still needs to occur from the research as well as uh, guidelines for, for some of those things. Um, but I, th I think the, the key being monitor just like you would anything else. So blood pressure, heart rate, you're looking at their, their skin. If they're doing a, an activity that's more uh, a relaxation experience versus a physical thing where you expect them to sweat, but all of a sudden they're getting clammy and things like that, you're going to react to that the same way that you would in under any other activity. Um, but because virtual reality is a sensory-based thing, mostly visual, but with there are a lot of virtual realities out there now that incorporate uh, digital smells, which t sounds funny, but it's a, is a reality, and is and adds. All right, could, could you explain what that I is? I wish I could. Okay. <laughs> right. I I can't. All I know is it it plug it attaches underneath the headset, and the game has to be programmed. Oh, it's like a it's like it's like smellovision. Exactly. From the good old days. Do you remember the smellovisions? And then the actual yeah the actual combination of what the, it releases is programmed into the game. And you literally can smell the rain, wow. or you can smell smoke, or you can, and you can even make it directionally. It's same thing with sound, and so it, it's it's immersive in 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 all the senses, and that's why it's so powerful, and could present problems for some some cases. For the for those therapists out there and uh, budding therapists out there that are uh, below the age of smellovision, so uh, back in the movie theaters, uh, they they had it was it was called smellovision, and they. They had, uh, there were scenes in the movie where something would happen that would have a smell to it, and they would kind of waft these aromas in an entire movie theater. But they used fans, so you could, like, they would start the fan going right before the smells would go through the theater, so you always, you always knew what was coming. So hopefully they don't have a, a fan that cranks up right before, but maybe they do. I don't know, maybe if it's on a headset or a nose set it would be uh it would be smaller so we keep learning things new every day don't we so um you talk a lot about clinical reasoning and and how um important that is to your practice so just from a, a clinical reasoning standpoint how do you assess do you have kind of a rubric you use or a, a mental rubric when a, a new technology comes onto the market to decide whether or not um this is something that you want to you want to do you look at the research you uh, hope that somebody sends you a free sample of it uh, and give it a go. How do you how do you approach that? Uh, all of that. There's not there's not really a rubric. That's um, one of the key differences between when a person's a student and then they go out into the the, the field work. 
they they expect to come out in field work, read an article, and then apply it as if the article is the rubric to follow, and then they're confused as to why the patient isn't responding the same way as the research. Um, it's it's really a heuristic approach when it comes to the clinical reasoning. But when you're looking at, is there a, an approach that I look at the technology? I always look at it from a, a very basic framework because technology can be complicated as it is enough as it is. Um, so I look at you know the, the the nobology of it is what it's called, and it's really knowing how it works. How do you turn it on? How do you adjust it? Both from the hardware and is the that software nabology or nobology? Nobology was I can't remember the name of the physical therapist who coined that terminology in uh, a presentation that I attended, but it, it kind of stuck. But it's the difference in so what ter- what knob you turn on to get it to work? Yeah, I say I'm using eSTEM, I know here's the protocol. I turn it on, I put it to these settings, I set it for that long, and I let the protocol happen. I'm not interested in the clinical reasoning about it. I just know that if I run it, set it and forget it, that kind of thing. But um, going beyond, and, and, and nebology is a necessary part of it. That's the starting point. You have to know how it turns on. You have to know how to adjust it. But then how do you then use those same features and options um, to make it a therapeutic intervention? How do you then use those things um, to grade the activity? How do I combine it with other technologies? Um, so if, if within the, 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 the software I can manipulate where the, the person's um, body position is, it's really interesting. I'll give you an example of how, how crazy it can be. Like there's a, a game called Box VR. And say you have somebody who has arthritis and they can only raise their arm so far. Um, and on, on, say their right arm only, they can only flex their shoulder to like 20 degrees. And their left arm is, they've got full range. Well, they're in this boxing simulator and you're in going to the music in a, in a gym and you're punching these colored objects that come at you to the rhythm of the music. But within the game, there's a setting where you can adjust where the visual representation of the, that right glove is. And you can raise it within the game to be the, even with the left boxing glove. So you watch them. They're punching at 20 degrees shoulder flexion, but they're jabbing in the game with full 90 degree f- shoulder flexion. And within about, it's, it's really weird because, you know, as I research it and do the activity analysis, when I do that to myself, after about a minute or so, it no longer feels like a mismatch. I, it feels like I'm really punching to nine degrees, even though I know cognitively I'm really punching down around the level of my knee. It's really weird, but p- the perception of virtual reality overrides a lot of your cognitive things when you're no longer cognitively approaching it. And so it's, it's really interesting to, to see the, the power of that, and it can be a very powerful tool. And so how do you then grade that? Well, I can either lower the, the boxing glove and tell them to keep it up higher, as they get stronger and or tolerate it more, um, or I can bring it down all the way and maybe put them in a mobile arm support and take the weight of the arm off and let them punch with more of a natural combination. So it's knowing the features and the options available both from a hardware side and a, and a software side is what is it that I can control and manipulate and change to get the desired response, whether it's a cognitive response or a behavioral response, um, based on what I know about the technology in the game. And that only comes through your activity analysis. It's, it's no different than any other activity analysis you do for anything else. And people forget about that because they just want to play the game. And if you're just having somebody play a VR game, you're doing more of an accessible um, exploration, not a, an intervention. The intervention requires the clinical reasoning and the adjusting and grading of the activity towards the goal that you're working on. Gotcha. Um, 
so I guess are there uh, is it ever ethical to play a game with your patient? How's that? Oh, absolutely. Um, so for instance, I'll give you a, an example. Um, you may have uh, take the take. Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna say a company because it. it they, they came out with the Xbox Adaptive Controller and the Xbox. They have a, a function called Copilot. And I'll give you an example of me playing with the patient and then the, the family. So you're playing this, this virtual driving game, um, Forza Horizon 4. You're driving in England. I'm chasing sheep where we're supposed to be driving down the road, but that's just because that's how I play. Um, but say the patient is, is working on being able to say they've got um, a C6, C5 spinal cord injury and they're working on being able to um, do forward reach as well as just start controlling um, their, sh their shoulder movements for basic self-care, whether it's bathing or dressing. And um, you give them a joystick that goes through the Xbox adaptive controller. But if they can't handle pushing the joystick forward and then moving left and right to steer, then somebody's got to do the gas and brake and somebody's got to do the steering. What do I as a clinician want them to focus on? If I want them to have that isometric contraction and stabilize that forward reach, I might have them do gas and brake and I'll steer. Or the other way, I need them, I just need them to start moving left and right and get, getting some sense of control and I'll do the gas and brake. And so we're, we're working together on their goal, but we're both playing and it takes communication, which is why we use that with patients um, with, who ha need to communicate with their, their loved ones about their care. You have a patient with a spinal cord injury who is on a bowel program. It's a very uncomfortable conversation to have um, until it becomes more natural as part of the, your daily routine. And it's an uncomfortable conversation. So we may have them start working on communication skills. We teach them the communication skills, but then we tell them apply it while you're playing this game. So maybe they start with um, nefarious reasons and the patient goes, I want the gas because I'm going to make my spouse you know, have to control it while I'm going full out 120 to 180 miles an hour, or that's not nefarious. And they're like, I'd like to control it. And their spouse does the same thing. It always starts out that way. I don't know why, but, but then you teach that, have them use their communication skills, but how do you communicate? Cause in the game, if you set a destination, it gives you a path to follow. And when there's a turn, that path changes color if you're going too fast. And so if, if, the person who's steering knows they can't control it. They need to communicate. I need you to slow down. There's a corner coming up, slow down ahead of time, um, that kind of thing. And they're using some of the same strategies we might teach them to use. And all of a sudden you see about 40 minutes later, they don't even have to communicate. They start knowing what they need to do. Um, and then they start challenging each other more. Okay, let's take it at this speed. Let's try to do this. And they start challenging each other and start grading it. And it's just, we tell them this, use the same strategy you use. You got through being able to drive together. You can have this uncomfortable conversation about how, how are we going to do this bowel program? Or how are we going to do the catheterization? How do we do these uncomfortable conversations after we've had some, a fun way of interacting and communicating? And, and it, it's, it seems to work pretty well with patients. Again, there's no research on it. But, but it started because of a patient gave us the feedback that, it, hey, that allowed us to have an uncomfortable conversation. And it's been consistent when we use that with others. Yeah, I um, used to, a long time ago, before I was an OT, so a really, really long time ago, um, worked with a younger person that had a traumatic brain injury. And, and I just noticed that even with gaming, that um, he had a lot of frustrations. And it, it seemed to really help him <laughs> to you know, to kind of get out some of those frustrations and he'd kind of feel better after, after he did some, 
some gaming back then. And um, when we played games together, uh, he always won, which I don't know what that says about me, but uh, you know, it's it's just part of it. So in in terms of the evidence, you know, uh, is there much literature that you're going to see in AJOT or in um, you know some of our more prominent occupational therapy journals, or are you looking um, at, at other types of journals to really look at where the where the literature is right now, or where the research is? There are industry related. I I I, I do more than just um, therapy professional journals. Um, a I, I I do that just to, to to see how researchers in the profession, rehab profession, are. Um, starting to think about using virtual reality. How are they defining it and using it? What kind of technology they're using? Is there something new that I should be aware of? But also, is there some different way it, that I can incorporate it as evidence? Again, if it's a bespoke VR program, then it lets me know, does that program do what it says it's going to do? Um, but then I look at the industry research because they're looking at the basic concepts. They're looking at the primary research you know, how does, how does perception on a basic level? So I'm looking at psycho, psychology journals. Um, there's actually a, a, a gaming um, research um, journal out there that the entire journal every month is about um, rehab gaming, um, serious gaming, uh, therapeutic gaming, and using different platforms for very specific ones. So a lot of the gaming ones that don't make it into... Um, some of the peer-reviewed journals, it's still peer-reviewed, but it's more, it's an open source and it's geared towards that, then it allows them to, to submit to something that is focused and the reviewers who are reviewing it are focused on that as a genre or that as a, a treatment context or a treatment approach. And so there's a larger community um, doing that. So that's sometimes I go to that gaming journal to to kind of see how people are starting to do it with the focus on using the gaming technologies, whether it's immersive or non-immersive virtual reality. Um, so if you focus too narrow into just one area, then you're going to miss the bigger picture. Yeah, I think especially now gamification seems to be uh, a buzzword in education and higher ed and, and really in, uh, in younger uh, students as well, just to, um, it's that, the engagement piece, and, and then can we continue that through so hopefully the learning that they're doing they're doing continues well and even you know when i went to school we had real cadavers and a lot of places can't afford cadavers and you don't have that experience of visualizing um the body in that three-dimensional space but with virtuality there are a lot of virtual reality um dissection programs that give you that same kind of experience that is so much better than the two-dimensional um, book or video-based kind of uh, cadaver dissections. And so in education, virtual reality is going to play a, continuing to play a, a big role in the future. Yeah, I think some of those 360-degree models that are um, on some of the apps that are out there, um, I, I've understood the brain much better than I did back uh, in my cadaver dissection days and, and brain dissection days, uh, just because you, you see the relationship so much easier because they'll just show you the hippocampus and what it what it actually attaches to and you know um, function follows form or does form follow function i guess that's a i guess that's a philosophy yes and yes well in virtual reality you can and i have gone inside somebody's brain to see the relationship of where that hippocampus is related to the skull and and look around from the position of the hippocampus to, to look around it i've gone into the lungs the heart you know and you can go and into the elbow and see some of the relationships at a very different level um, and it helps you understand the systems a lot better so it's really interesting so 
so kind of a broad range of journals. Is there much really in the in occupational therapy journals? Or that's, we're still kind of learning? Most of that was the Wii, the Connect, and some adaptive gaming stuff. Um, but again, I th think as a profession, we don't define it well enough. Um, in addition to the virtual reality industry itself doesn't, the tech industry doesn't define it well. It's even worse when you're looking at physicians and therapists as they define VR for research projects. And it, that, that ambiguity in, in taxonomy is, uh, makes it very difficult for a clinician to decide what determine um, what to determine what to use from a virtual reality perspective. Mm -hmm. could, could you just define taxonomy for us? Yeah, think of it as a classification and labeling system. I mean, you're defining what concepts are and what those things. So for instance, a taxonomy and ex, um, extended reality is, well, what is extended reality? That's the umbrella kind of term for all the different kinds of realities that there, there could be or may be in the future even. And then you have your virtual reality and it, Virtuality is a, a computer-generated world or environment, and then, but how you how you interact with that environment depends on the the technology that you use. And is it a, a phone? Is it a tablet? Is it a computer screen? Is it an immersive headset? Do you have finger tracking, or do you have to use a control? All those are different um, types of ways to interact with it, and it tells you the difference between okay, well, augmented reality, you know, like we talked about, has that overlaying layer, but I approach mixed reality, like the HoloLens, very differently than I would Pokemon Go on a phone. And I can't manipulate things or resize things or see inside or around things when it's mixed with the real reality, unless it's anchored. And some research articles call augmented and mixed realities virtual reality, which doesn't help. And so that's why you have to look at how they define it, but there's no set taxonomy of the technologies. There's no set taxonomy. Um, there's not really a, a, an industry agreement on what all those things mean. And you can, ha you can have five different developers in a room and they'll all have a different perception of what they view virtual reality, mixed reality, augmented reality, um, and even some that still using augmented virtuality. And so there's not a consensus as to how things should be defined and concepts should be made. Um, and then some companies just, you know, decide they're going to create their own definition and rename themselves. Gotcha. Fortunately, we don't have any of that happening in occupational therapy. So we're, we're just perfectly good there. So that, that's always good. Um, so can you talk a little bit about how, how you incorporate some of these um, kind of evidence-based treatment strategies into um, what you're, you're doing on a daily basis with uh, some of the patients you're seeing at the University of Michigan? Sure. Um, let's take a, a, a new area. So, say um, someone with left neglect, visual neglect. Um, you have certain kinds of scanning strategies or models, whether you're using a lighthouse model kind of approach or whether you're using just cues with cue withdrawals kind of approach. Um, there are a lot of different approaches you can use to do scanning strategies. You can use neck vibration therapy while doing cues and cue withdrawals while doing lighthouse. I mean, so there are a lot of different ways you can mix some of the evidence about how do you get them to pay attention and scan into that left um, visual field. And so I'm going to give you an example of, from a technology standpoint, a virtual standpoint. I've had patients sit in front of the computer screen and do those scanning strategies with the screen just to provide a different context than 
on the table. Uh, and then you can have different kinds of switches and things that they would have to interact with on the left side, locate, scan, scan, locate, and interact with those switches. Um, but personally, I mean, there's no statistic to show it, but I mean, I just see that it's, it's, it, it's not very different than a tabletop kind of interactive activity. Um, but when we put them in virtual reality, uh, the very first person I, I put them in was right after I tried doing it in the, on the computer screen, didn't really, you know, they had the same amount of uh, responses with anything else. We had them do it and she did mountain climbing on a game called The Climb. And we started her on a, on a course that we knew with the very first checkpoint. Um, there are chalk markers. So could she use the environmental cues to help guide her? She used that to guide herself to the right where we wanted her so she could learn how to, how to climb the mountain and use, use the technology. Once you get to that checkpoint, if you fall, you automatically go back to that checkpoint. You don't have to start over. And when you fall, you don't die. She really loved that. And she laughed and, and she's like, I love that I can climb a mountain and not die when I fall. And um, so once you're at that checkpoint though, there's a chalk arrow that points to the left. And so she would see the chalk arrow. She would look to the left, look for a spot that she could grab. And she was turning her head, reaching out and grabbing it. And then she would get to this, she made her way to this one part where there was a long ledge that she had to go. Um, which perceptually looked to be about like a good 15 minute or 15 foot ledge. And she would get a couple, couple of reaches over and she'd fall off. She would go right back up there. She'd go right back to the checkpoint and immediately look left and would look for the ledge before she even looked for the next handhold. And I just sitting there going, I'm not, I haven't even had to cue her. She already knows what her scanning strategies are, but there was something about the context of, of the, the mountain that enabled her to do that. The other side of that was the very first time we had her try it, the first five minutes was on a climbing wall that just had geometric climbing holes. And she responded the exact same way she did on the computer or at the, in the clinic at the table. But it was the context of on the mountain using environmental cues and then being able to scan and she was recalling what she needed to do and it was much more engaging. And she spent the next 35 minutes without me having to give her any cues to start navigating climbing this mountain from her wheelchair. And so one of the things we recognized was that she did really well with visual environmental cues. And when you then added those to her environment, it, she was more successful. So how would, like just an example, how would you add those to her environment? So if you had certain things, and again, the hospital's hard to do, but if you were in home care and you were in their home and there were certain things that they had, then you could, you could and you'd have to trial them because, because using them, the, the environmental cues is very specific to the environment that they're in. The context of a chalk arrow pointing left and then chalk on rocks and seeing the difference, those rocks you can grab versus those you can. But in the home, it might be something in the kitchen that um, you're using the stove and maybe you have, and it could be, it depends on the person, you could have a little sign, you could have uh, an arrow reminder, or you could have something that when you turn on the stove, make sure you have the pot on the right side. I mean, it, it, it's a very experimental thing. And so I think the, the therapist who was using the environmental cues um, actually created a little um, visual chart in plastic that could be placed in the shower, um, in the hospital shower, because that was just an out of context thing for them. The soap dish was on the left. They simply just had a picture of, a so of soap on a soap dish. And the person would sit there and, when they, and they would look and they would see that and they would glance to the left. And nobody had to tell them, don't forget the soap is there. They would put the soap back, they would rinse off and say that we needed to, to wash another part. They weren't scanning 
they would look up, see the soap, and initiate the scan. So it, it's a way to internalize some of the cues and instead of relying on another person or a caregiver to provide you those scanning strategies. Um, and hopefully over time become more naturalized. So basically you're using your clinical reasoning skills, you know, taking uh, the, the behavior that you've noticed within the virtual reality and then, you know, trying to, to bring that over to um, her real life and, Correct. and hopefully making progress for her like on I a said, daily basis. You know, virtual reality and, you know, tech therapeutic technologies um, don't actually teach you how to do the things you need to do. They only help you build your capacity to do those things. They help reinforce strategies, teach ways of doing things. But the actual way to put a shirt on or to cook a meal is to actually put your shirt on and cook a meal or to, you know, walk across your grass at home. Guess what you have to, you can walk on padding or f fake turf in a hospital, but it's very different than the real thing. And so you have to, in order to teach those real life skills, you have to be in those real life situations. That's why this is just a, a, a context and a, a strategy to use to build capacity, whatever that capacity may be. Gotcha. Um, earlier you'd mentioned that uh, there seems to be more of a role for occupational therapists and for self-advocates um, with technology companies. Can you talk a little bit about that and maybe what some of the opportunities are or some of the occupational therapists that are doing that work? Sure, she'll probably you know, throw something at me the next time she sees me, but Caitlin Jones works for Microsoft. I've heard of them. Um, yep, and um, her father started doing adaptive gaming setups for veterans on the East Coast, and he uh, runs a not-for-profit, uh, a, not a charity called Warfighter Engaged to help um, get people who, um, veterans, back to gaming or introduce them to gaming as another activity and he build you know he'll he builds things and um, creates accessible technologies and one of the things um, he was doing was cracking open and um, modifying the xbox controller um, able gamers as a charity that had, was doing the same thing and so microsoft started calling in these people that they were finding that were messing with their stuff and said well why are you cracking this open and it's because you des didn't design it for the people who were who want to play. So we were making it so that they can play your games. And so Microsoft decided to start doing things. That's where they came up with the Xbox adaptive controller. So they started consulting people. Um, Aaron Mustin Fersh, who's at Craig Hospital. Um, uh, you got Eric Johnson, he's in Texas. Um, they were two OTs that were part of that process. And then Kaylin was uh, an OT student. She became an OT because of her father's work. Um, and then she ended up getting a job with Microsoft. I believe she was the first OT. She can correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe she was the first OT working for them. And now she uh, uh, works on the Xbox um, accessibility program. She's a program manager for Xbox accessibility. And uh, she does some really great things. And she's got some great videos that she's put out. If you have a chance to look at some of her Microsoft videos, um, she's, she's very well spoken and does a great job explaining some of the accessibility solutions um, that they've worked on. So, you know, there, there are people in all kinds of tech positions who are used to be OTs or still are OTs and providing um, their OT expertise just in a non-traditional, non-clinical way. I think it's, uh, there's, there are going to just continue to be more of those opportunities. I know uh, a lot of our speech language pathology friends have gotten very involved in some of the um, the text-to-speech and some of the, the cognitive um, types of technology. And so I think 
um, we've got a lot of opportunities occupational therapists to do some of that work as well and we, we're going to connect uh, folks on our handout that will come with this podcast if you go to occupationaltherapy.com uh, to um, five or six folks on Twitter that that uh, I follow I don't know if you follow them or not Rob but um, that it, it's helpful I only follow you Dennis oh that's good and then I'll retweet them and then you can see them that way uh, so that way um, people can have an idea of some of these folks that are really uh, doing some some great work I know um, Steve Saylor is another person I think is with Microsoft is that right I think so um, and then um, Stephen Spawn is another self-advocate so um, doing well and actually Able Gamers um, recently hired an OT to be their director of um, their um, community interaction pillar um, so he is connecting um, therapists with um, um, trying to make gaming more inclusive on a broad scale and getting all of Able Gamers um, a capacity out there so that people are able to use some of the, the inclusive and adaptive gaming tools. And, and uh, so I, I'll include him on that, that handout as well. Um, yeah, he's doing some great, he's doing some great stuff. Yeah, I think uh, he's an escaped academic uh, like myself. Yes, so there's, yes, he is. There's lots of us that are uh, doing some of that work. Um, I think uh, the other thing that that I know as a as a, a more seasoned therapist, I remember I um, when I was first teaching activity and analysis and was just looking at the, um, I think it was one of our previous versions of the the practice framework uh, that really didn't talk much about. Uh, virtual realities and just how important some of those social networks are for all of us, especially during COVID, but especially during COVID for folks that are, you know, that are, can be vulnerable um, to, to be in, uh, you know, some settings, especially uh, these days that um, are able to have their social networks that are virtual and to make these connections between each other. Um, I don't know if you've seen that much or not. Uh, yeah, actually, with um, just before COVID, we started having a, 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 an inter-hospital adaptive gaming experiences between uh, patients with spinal cord injury at Craig Hospital and our patients with spinal cord injury here at Michigan, where they would get to, the opportunity to connect, connect and play games with each other from different locations to, to realize that their community is much larger than their hometown. They don't have to imagine and visualize their community as being so tangible and close, you can hop on on a Friday night with somebody from somewhere else in the world and and make a new friend and, and play video games together. And so um, it, it, it was an awesome, powerful kind of uh, experience. And um, we're hoping to get back to doing that soon. And I know Craig has, has been working with some other hospitals and doing some of the same thing. I, I would love to see that become, you know, the rehab arcade be a, a kind of reality uh, beyond that small, you know, Ohio State has a, a rehabilitation hospital as well. You can maybe see if you can play them. That'd be kind of Ohio fun. State. Where yeah, is that? The, the Ohio State University. It's called Dodd Rehabilitation Hospital. No, I think I've been there. I think yeah, I've been excellent. there. Very, very good people. Um, so uh, let's say you get to run the world, uh, which is a scary thought in and of itself. It would be a disaster. But um, in terms of what you as a clinician really needs in terms of um, being able to show to, you know, first and foremost, to improve your the lives of your patients, um, but for funders, for families, physicians, other people that might be a little skeptical, um, 
what would you like to see as sort of the, the future of, of research? What would you really like to see happen in this space? Uh, good question. I think there there is a need for more made for therapy um, virtual reality solutions that are affordable because they have it would be something that would have to be commercialized and if you're going to build and develop something you should be able to recoup the cost of that and or um, you know make it into a business where you can provide the those solutions to people in an affordable way and i think more research has to be done to make those um, systems and and games um, specific to rehab and and how to make them more accessible but at the same time how do you then have enough autonomy for the clinician to decide what therapeutic interventions um, to use with the virtuality. And so I think that there needs to be some um, research into commercial virtuality gaming versus structured therapeutic virtuality gaming versus made for therapy rehab gaming, maybe using same strategies. You know, I, I'm not a researcher, so control the variables however you, you will. And my job will be to interpret your research and determine how I'm going to use that in, in the clinic. But there, there definitely needs to be some efficacy studies on uh, made for therapy solutions, as well as the clinical reasoning process. Just because you have two therapists using VR and using clinical reasoning doesn't mean they're going to think the same way. So there's no consistency. That's the downside of using commercial systems and relying on um, the clinician to make all all the choices about how they interact with it because different experience levels, different uh, perspectives and perceptions of the technology and just different thought processes. And it doesn't necessarily mean it's gonna be as successful. So there's some inconsistency with clinical results too. And so there, there's, there's a trade-off, protocols in, in research versus autonomy in practice. And, and how do we kind of find a, a soft in-between for both of those to exist more happily? Um, I think is, is a big point, but I think there also needs to be my, I have a concern again, this is a fresh thing. If there's a researchers out there, you know, virtuality with children is a big, um, question mark ethically, um, because of the developmental stages that young kids are in introducing these alternate perceptual, um, experiences. Does that alter their ability to interact with the tangible environment? Um, and, you know, is it okay to have three or four VR sessions and not have a big deal? But what about the kids who are maybe using virtual reality more frequently and more commonly? And is that affecting their, their developmental skills? Um, those kinds of issues, as well as maybe somebody who has um, personality disorders or um, orders of disorders of uh, perception and reality. If you then introduce another reality, is that a good thing or a bad thing? And I don't know enough about that to say one way or the other, but that that's a question. But it also gets into the ethical things because now you're going to have to really, they're a really vulnerable population and you're going to introduce something. It's a huge issue from a clinical reasoning standpoint. Have you run into something like that in your own practice that you've had a... It's not something, it's not something I'm comfortable doing until there's evidence. So if I question it, let me, even with, it took me a little while to, 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 to consider using VR with patients with brain injury, traumatic brain injury, where their perception of and confusion about what was going on um, existed. 
Um, and so it, it, and it, it is a case by case basis study because there's just no research to, to go, is it going to be a good thing or a bad thing? So I typically wait until they're more oriented to what's going on and they can understand the fact that they're getting in and out of virtual reality. And that's just a choice that I make. Um, and because I don't know. And if I don't know, I'm not going to do. And so that's kind of like the first choice that I always make. If I don't know, I won't do. Seems like that makes you an ethical person. I hope so. I do go to the University of Michigan. That team up north. That team up north. No, they're, they're, there's good people in Michigan. There's good people most places. Uh, so so that's something anyway. Um, so in terms of kind of the future, uh, since you run the world, what what are you hoping that virtual reality, um, what's the next big thing you'd like to see to really help um, your patients? That it was free for everybody. <laughs> Um, and completely accessible. I mean, I think in the future, you know, I don't know how I feel about it yet, but, you know, uh, BCI, brain-computer interfaces, um, are not where they need to be to be able to, to use. But, I mean, there are some people who are using uh, brainwaves to not only control computers, but to move in virtual environments. And so I think there's a potential in that in the future. I'm afraid to see what that would look like. You know, does that mean I'm going to, are we moving more towards cyborgs? I mean, or am I getting a little too MCU? We already have cyborgs. I mean, if, if you have an, uh, a replacement body part, you're already, you might consider yourself a cyborg. I mean, I would. Um, and I know people that do. They're like, I'm a cyborg. I've got this. And so the difference being what level of the technology is that, that that's in you. And, you know, then you just get into science fiction, but is it, science fiction that leads to science or is it science to science fiction? I, I've seen both. So am I afraid of it? Um, only if I take a Terminator approach. Well, um, I, I'm very much on board uh, with almost everything you've said, Ron, but especially the, the accessibility and to really look at, you know, access to, to Wi-Fi at home for, for folks, um, access to, to computers that are powerful enough to be able to manage um, some of the uh, virtual reality that that might take uh, a, a stronger computer than than maybe uh, folks might typically have at home. So um, I think that's a, a huge first step. So when you run the world, um, that would be a great first step, and we'd appreciate it. Accessibility, and then there are some people doing some good work towards accessibility for uh, virtual reality right now. Um, so. Well, uh, Rob Ferguson from the University of Michigan, want to thank you again for being a guest here on the podcast, and I hope you have a great day. You too, Dennis. Thanks. Thanks.